Well, a few of you may remember this, but back in 1995, Joan Osborne was thrust into the limelight, uh, thrust into the limelight, um, the limelight of Top 40 Radio, when um, having sung a song written by a man named Eric Bazilian, and the title of the song was One of Us. Again, some of you may remember it. What's interesting about the song is uh, that it presupposes the existence of God. And it not only presupposes the existence of God, it presupposes the existence of a God who is deserving of glory. Now, um, that song, if you remember it, it posed a question. And the question was, what if God was one of us? Uh, now, I'm um, not saying that the song and the question are actually, or, or the song uh, wasn't written to consider the implications of the incarnation. Um, but I do think, in some sense, I, I think it, it more, the song eludes more to the passage in Matthew 25, uh, where Jesus speaks of people feeding him, uh, giving him something to drink, um, giving him clothes to wear a place to stay, and visiting him in in prison. And then, of course, Jesus wraps that up by saying, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me, or as you did not do it to one of the least of of these, you did not do it to me. And I I don't know for certain. That's a guess because I couldn't find anywhere where Mr. Bazilian explained what it was, um, you know, the reasoning behind or or what it was he was writing. Um, But regardless, the question is the perfect question for us to pose in this last, um, as we look at this last text of our series um, in these nine lessons and carols. It's a question that it poses, it's a question that we, of course, uh, can answer, obviously we can answer, and we We'll obviously answer it in this text, one of us, but our text also answers the what if question. You know, what was significant about His coming? And it's an answer that gives us hope. It gives us a hope not only for today, but for every day. And I think it's a perfect text for us as we begin this new year of 2023. I want us to see five things from the text. I want us to see first the pre-existence of the Word. I want us to see the coexistence of the Word. We're going to see the divine existence of the Word. We're going to see the human existence of the Word. And then we'll see the significance of that existence. And you'll find those um, points in the normal spot in the back of your bulletin, but let's pray before we begin tonight. Uh, Father, I ask you in these moments that you would open our eyes and ears to the truth of your word. We ask that your spirit would work through the proclamation of it and work in such a way that we are different when we leave than when we arrived. As always, I am weak and needy and unfit for this task to which you've called me. And so I ask that you would grant me grace and fill me with your spirit that I might do something good for you this evening. Allow me to speak with fluency, fervency, and grace. 
For the sake of Christ and His church, I pray these things. Amen. Well, John begins his gospel profoundly different than the other three gospel writers. Uh, We know from our previous um, eight uh, lessons and carols that both Matthew and Luke begin with birth narratives. Of course, Matthew begins with a genealogy, but very quickly comes and follows that up with a with a birth narrative. Uh, Mark does something a little different, and he begins with Jesus as an adult. But John, who wrote so that his readers may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing they may have life in His name, he jumps, um, well, he determines a different course of action. He doesn't begin at the birth, he goes back further than the birth. John goes back further than the prophecies of his birth. John goes back further than the promises made to both Abraham and as well as to Adam and to Eve regarding a seed who would be born who would secure redemption on behalf of his people. John goes all the way back into eternity past. John jumps off into the deep waters of Trinitarian theology to eliminate all doubt regarding, um, well, he does so in such a way that he, he speaks of the fact that the birth and the life of Jesus is anything but natural and ordinary. He wants his readers to know, of course, you know, the conception Right, was supernatural, and that Jesus Himself was extraordinary, despite the fact that His birth was very natural and ordinary. And John jumps in immediately with the first six words. He speaks of the pre-existence of the Word, the pre-existence of Christ. He speaks of His transcendence and eternality. He says, in the beginning was the Word. The best translation is probably when the beginning began, the Word already was. Calvin says, of course, that the Word or Christ transcends time. So in other words, what John is saying is that there wasn't a time when the Word or when Christ wasn't. Christ always has been. Christ wasn't created during creation. He didn't come into existence at His birth. In the beginning, when the beginning began, Christ already was. And Jesus Himself testifies to this truth. We hear it in His high priestly prayer in John 17 when He said, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had, past tense, with You before the world existed. Passage just beyond what Grant read John the Baptist also testifies of this truth when he said even though he was born before Christ, Christ ranked above him. And why did he rank above him? Because he says Christ was in existence before him. And as a matter of fact, in verse 3, John tells us that not only was Christ not created, but that he was the agent through whom all things were created. He says all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And Paul, of course, agrees with John. He said all things were created through Him and and for Him. 
And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And the author of Hebrews agrees with them both. He says that Christ was appointed heir of all things and was the one through whom the world was created. So the testimony of Scripture is that Christ pre-existed. But John said he has not only always been, he has not only pre-existed or has always pre-existed, he also says that he has always been with God. In other words, he's always coexisted with God. In Genesis 1 that Grant read, uh, when the beginning began, God already was. And then in John 1, John writes, in the beginning, Christ already was as well. And human logic tells us, right, that if God already existed and pre-existed and Jesus already or Christ already pre-existed, then we, we know and understand that they were with each other when the beginning began. And here John confirms it when he says, and the Word was with God. John's describing the Son and the Father as distinct from one another. He was describing them as being in a face-to-face, intimate relationship with one another. They aren't, the Father and Son aren't different names of the same person. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. In the words of A. Hodge, the Father is the Father of His only begotten Son, and the Son is the only begotten Son of His Father. The two cannot be separated from one another, but at the same time they remain distinguishable. Christ is a distinct person. He is a distinct personality, and He has a distinct role, had a distinct role in creation, and has a distinct role in redemption from the Father. But they work in harmony with one another. Again, in the words of Hodge, the Father sent and operated through the Son, and the Son acted for and revealed the Father. Well, John doesn't end there, of course. He he continues in his opening statement with words that have been resisted by people for a long time. He also said that Christ, who pre-existed and co-existed with God, was God. A better translation would be, God was the Word. And from our finite perspective, when we think about it, Christ has to either be God or with God. He can't be both. And to make up for that limited knowledge, sometimes the translation has changed, as the Jehovah's Witnesses do, trying to make sense of it all, trying to get our heads around it. But John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, Christ was pre-existent with the Father. He was distinct from the Father, and yet He was also God. In other words, Jesus and the Father are two distinct persons, but have one essence or substance. One is not more God than the other. One is not greater than or subordinate to the other. They are equal yet distinct. In the words of James Boyce, everything that can be said about God the Father can be said about God the Son. In Jesus dwells all the wisdom, glory, power, love, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth of the Father. 
And again, in the words of Hodge, there is but one indivisible and inalienable spiritual essence. The attributes of God are the properties of the divine essence, and therefore common to each of, and Hodge says, of the three persons, the three, of course, being the Holy Spirit. But he goes on to say, who are the same in substance and therefore equal in power and glory. They have in common one infinite intelligence, power, will, and etc., he says. And as we try to get our heads around that, then John continues on. He doesn't stop there. He doesn't give us a break. We can't take a breath. Having spoken of the pre-existence of Christ and the coexistence of Christ and the divine existence of Christ, he adds to the mystery and speaks of the human existence of Christ. In verse 14, he says, and the Word became flesh. John says the pre-existent distinct person who was with and is co-equal with God, became flesh. Some of your translations might have came into flesh or came into existence. It's better, I believe, for us today to say became, because came into flesh seems to leave us with a picture of something that could be um, a part of some science fiction movie with God taking on a human host to live on earth. And even the words came into existence leaves us with the impression that Christ didn't exist before He was born. But we've already spoken of the fact that became as better because we know He was in fact born of a virgin. He was truly human. But He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and was in the beginning with God and He was God and therefore He was also truly divine. In the words of one early church father, he did not lose what he was, but began to be what he was not. He did not cease to possess his own nature, but received what was ours. And Paul testified to this when he said, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so we've got to ask ourselves, do we not? We have to ask ourselves, what is the significance of this existence? What was the result? Well, first, let's look at verse 14 again. John said, the Word that became flesh dwelt among us. The Word dwelled actually means encamped or pitched a tent. It also can be translated tabernacled. So in other words, John is saying Jesus was the visible presence of the glory of God residing in the midst of mankind. The glory of God that once was only present within the tabernacle was now present and visible in Jesus Christ. He who was and is God pitched his tent by taking on a human body and lived among men. The Creator came to live among his creatures in the midst of his creation. We speak of, his, we speak of it as condescending and dwelling among us. Now look at verses 4 and 5. John writes, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then later on in verse 18 that we didn't read, it says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. 
John reminds us that up to this point in the with uh, up to this point of the incarnation, the essence of God had remained a mystery. But the time had come for the Son who was with God and who was God to become flesh and to tabernacle in our midst in order to make God known. And again, depending upon your translation, the ESV and the NIV say, has made Him known. The New American Standard says, has explained Him. He has explained Him. And then the, if you have a King James, it, it reads, He hath declared Him. And it can also be translated, He had, um, had been let out into the open. And so through the incarnation of the eternal Son, we have God being brought out into the open in order to be explained and to be known by men. And this is why John characterizes Him as the Word. Words are necessary to describe who we are. Words are necessary to explain and to clarify things that we do. Words are necessary to express our ideas and our thoughts and our emotions So John says Christ was the Word for the sake of communicating that Jesus would be God's clear and unambiguous expression of who He was to mankind. Unbelievable. But John is referring to much more than God being physically seen. Yes, it's true that we cannot see the Father physically and Jesus has made that possible. But John's also referring to spiritual sight and spiritual understanding as well. We can't physically see the Father, and Christ has made that possible. In His own words, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. But we also, brothers and sisters, we are unable in and of ourselves to spiritually see or spiritually understand as well. Calvin says in his commentary on 1 Timothy 6 that the cause of that obscurity is not in God as if He were hidden in darkness, but in ourselves, who on account of the weak vision or rather the dullness of our understanding cannot approach the light or His light. We must understand that the light of God is unapproachable if anyone endeavor to approach it in his own strength. And this is why John says in verse 13 that spiritual sight is not gained by physical birth. Spiritual sight is is not gained um, through, through our own wills. The exercise of our own wills. Spiritual sight is, is not gained by the power of positive thinking. As if we just say it enough, it will happen. Spiritual, spiritual sight comes through spiritual rebirth. And that, of course, is a gift. It's a work of the Spirit of God, and it's a result of the kind intention of the will of the Father. So Christ, the one who was and is the source of both physical and spiritual life, came in order to bring light in the midst of darkness. He came to reveal God, to make Him known, to lead Him out into the opening by enlightening hearts and minds and enabling them to receive Him. And as it says in verse 12, to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. That's what we've been singing about all night. Gave the right to be adopted. 
more on that in just a moment when we come to the table. So what are the implications? What are the implications of God becoming one of us? I've just got six short ones. <laughs> First, because God was one of us, we can know the truth about Him. Because God was one of us, we can know the truth about Him. Though He cannot be known exhaustively, we've said this over the course of our series, He can't be known exhaustively because there are things about an infinite God that we as finite creatures just aren't going to understand. Yet He can still be known truly. If we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. If we want to know what God is like, we study the Lord Jesus, and we learn about and we study the living Word by learning about and studying His written Word. And of course, the Word that the Spirit enables us to understand when we read it and when we hear it read and preached. In Christ, we know what God has always been like because He was preexistent. Right? In Christ, we know that there is no such thing as the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. Because God is eternal. He's immutable. His attributes never change. He wasn't a God of wrath in the Old Testament and a God of love and grace and mercy in the New Testament. He is God. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same God presently, as He was in eternity past and as He will be in eternity future. So because God was one of us, we can know the truth about Him. But secondly, because God was one of us, He knows the truth about us. And not just omnisciently or by default. Right? He knows us, for lack of a better, better word, experientially. God, God in Christ knows what it's like to be human. He knows our frailties. He knows our shortcomings. He knows our infirmities and our griefs and our sorrows. And because He knows all of that about us, He doesn't just sympathize with us. He empathizes with us because, brothers and sisters, He has walked in our shoes. Jesus, just like the priests of the Old Testament, was chosen from among men. Right? It's what makes him a perfect high priest who is always interceding on our behalf at, at the throne of grace. So because God was one of us, we can know the truth about God. And because God, of one of us, because God was one of us, he knows the truth about us. But thirdly, because God was one of us, human life is valuable. Christ was born. He lived as an infant. He lived as a toddler. He lived as an adolescent. He lived as an adult. He lived bodily. He died bodily. He rose from the dead bodily. He ascended bodily. He's at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning bodily. He will return bodily. Therefore, our bodies matter at any and all stages of life. Our bodies and our lives are not frivolous. They're not meaningless, they're not cheap, and they're not to do with as we please. 
we who have been created, or who we have been created to be, and are therefore naturally and biologically is significant, and is to be preserved, not only because God has knitted us, knitted us together in our mother's wombs, but Jesus Himself has sanctified our bodies and our lives. And we should never forget that. So because God was one of us, human life is valuable. Fourthly, because God was one of us, Christ was able to serve as our representative and live in our place. Sin and death that affects all of humanity came through Adam, our original representative, our federal head in the garden. And because the problem began through a human being, the only cure had to come, the remedy had to come through a human being as well. But not just any human being, it had to be a perfect human being. And that perfect human being was the promised seed of the woman, the one Paul calls the last or second Adam. Jesus was born of a woman. Jesus was born under the law. And then He fulfilled the law on our behalf. Because we were under under its burden and its curse. And there wasn't anything that we were going to be able to rectify that situation. But just as Adam's sin had been credited to us by grace through faith, Christ's act of obedience has now been credited to us. And our ledger that was only at one time full of sin and guilt and debt due to the sin of Adam that had been imputed to us and our own sins that we had committed has now been erased and is now full, has been filled with the righteousness of Christ, who lived as our new and better and perfect federal head. So because God was one of us, Christ was able to serve as our representative and live in our place. Fifth, because God was one of us, Christ was able to serve as our substitute and die in our place. Because we as human beings, we didn't just need the the active obedience of a human, we needed the passive obedience of a human as well. The wages of sin is death, and the blood of bulls and goats, was in, it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Only a human could die in the place of a human being. And so it was through His vicarious substitutionary atonement on the cross that He paid the debt that we owed. Our atonement was only possible because He was truly human. Make no mistake, the Lord Jesus is in Himself and in His work, His passive and active work, sufficient for the forgiveness of every man, woman, boy, and girl, past, present, and future. Because there is no one without need, there is no one beyond hope, because He is enough. And finally, because God was one of us, Christ was able to leave us an example to follow. As the ideal human being, Christ has left us an example as we, the redeemed, how we, the redeemed, can live God-honoring lives, striving and resting, walking in humble reliance upon the Spirit in faithful obedience and service to our King.
In the words of Peter, he left us an example so that we might follow in his steps. Well, beloved, this concludes our nine lessons and carols as we have looked at the incarnation of our Lord and Savior. And in the words of Pilate, (laughs) of all people, (laughs) behold the man. Behold the man. In the words of Paul, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation, of all creation, and in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He was one of us. He remains one of us. He is enough. Rest in him. Humble yourself before him. He is our Lord, our Savior, and our King. He alone is worthy of worship. Let's pray together. Almighty God, by your Spirit and grace, would you allow us, enable us to receive the Word with faith and love. May we lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. For your glory, for our good, and for the sake of Christ and His church, I pray these things. Amen.